0: Future, your host. I invite you to join me as together we experience a future quake.
1: There are new dreams crowding out old realities. There's revolution sweeping like a fresh new breeze. Let the old world make believe. It's blind, to death and dumb. But nothing can change the shape of things. Nothing can change the shape of things. Nothing can change the shape of things. Nothing can change the shape of things to
0: come. This is the Future Quake Show. I am Dr. Future. And unfortunately, Tom Bionic is not with us uh, today. Uh, Dr. Future is going to be flying solo this week until Friday. Uh, Brother Tom will be joining us back for our Tomorrow's Tremors. But we have an incredible guest on this week. Uh, we have a Mr. William Grigg, who is the uh, author of the "Liberty in Eclipse" book, and has an incredible blog called uh, Pro Libertate. And you can get that get to it at freedominourtime.blogspot.com. We'll have a link up on our website. But I want to cut to him because um, you're going to hear such a fundamental discourse from a intellectual giant. Uh, in the household of faith, that I want to jump straight to him. So we're going to cut away to my interview of William Grigg, and then we'll come back for a quick wrap-up. Ladies and gentlemen, today we're joined by William Grigg, the author of the Pro Libertati blog and a host of other media products. And today he's going to talk with us about the future challenges of our nation and the response and responsibilities of the Christian community. Mr. Grigg, it's, it's the opportunity of meeting new prestigious and honorable brothers in the Lord, such as you, that makes this radio venture so worthwhile for me. It's a pleasure for me to introduce you to brothers and sisters listening in that may not have been exposed to your wisdom, uh, insight, and intelligence. And to begin our discussions today, could you give our listeners a brief summary of your background, experiences, and credentials up to where you find yourself today, including a brief introduction to your books and documentary films?
2: I really appreciate the opportunity as well, and I certainly hope that what we have to discuss today will be edifying to our audience. I have to say that anything that I have to contribute by way of wisdom or insight is something I'm simply providing by way of synthesis. I wouldn't presume to say that I have unique or distinctive insights on any of these questions. I just try to be a good student, but with respect to my background in journalism and in media, For about 13 years, I was a senior editor with the New American Magazine, which is a bi-weekly news and commentary journal published in Appleton, Wisconsin, by the John Birch Society. And while I was working there for the New American Magazine for over a decade, I attended and covered something like a dozen United Nations conferences and summits, including the Population Control Conference. Actually, it was a summit because there were heads of state present in Egypt in Cairo Egypt back in 1994 that was a, an experience that was sort of seminal for me in that it really alerted me to the fact that there was an attempt whether it was something that was done by way of long-term design or i would consider misguided uh, improvisation at best to create this large cultural conflict between the west in the Islamic world, we're going to have trouble with the Islamic world anyway here in the West, but it seemed that there was a deliberate effort to exacerbate these divisions over matters that uh, Christians would certainly find uh, very inflammatory, having to do with family and uh, the roles of the various uh, Uh, types of uh, families in both the West and in the Islamic world.
0: Mr. Gregg, can I ask you just real quick, when when was that that this occurred?
2: It was in August of 1994.
0: All the way back to 1994.
2: Yeah, the Cairo International uh, Conference Center there was only a few blocks away from some of the universities where a lot of the radical imams were organizing jihad against the West, and I thought that that proximity was really quite symbolically appropriate because One of the things that will make people angry enough in order to kill and die if necessary in order to kill their enemies is the perception that their families are under siege. And so you had the West uh, subsidizing and organizing these missionaries of the eugenicist worldview and the radical feminist worldview, and then setting them loose on the developing world, including very conspicuously the Muslim world. Here you have the capital of not just any Muslim country, but one of the more influential of them, Egypt, being used as the site for a U.N. conference on population control. And as a a friend of mine, Majid Khatma, he's the head of a group in England called, um, uh, I believe it's called uh, Doctors for the Preservation of Innocent Life. He's a Muslim, uh, a practicing physician who's a Muslim. As he said to me, you don't understand in the West, from the Muslim point of view, God is the only population controller. And as I said, we were in for trouble with him anyway, but when you give them a plausible rallying cry having to do with the defense of their home and hearth and their families and their children, that will magnify the problems to where they become unmanageable. And So I came back from that experience in 1994. I was teaching Sunday school at the time, and I I taught from the 29th chapter of Isaiah the Sunday after I got back. Uh, You made a covenant with death and with hell, you're at agreement. And I said, look, we're going to have a war between the Western world, such as it is, and the Islamic world within a decade. Because we are consciously, by way of settled policy at the upper echelons of the United States government and the other Western governments, uh, provoking these people by attacking their families. He said, yeah, I don't really have any on their life. I certainly don't have a brief for their theology. But things were bad enough already, you don't need to borrow more trouble by doing this. But that was, as I said, really sort of a seminal incident in my life in terms of understanding some element of what's going on below the surface, the plate tectonics of politics, if you will. And then in 2000 in 2001, I attended a couple of conferences and summits at UN headquarters in, in uh, New York. In 2000, they had the Millennium Forum, which was intended to bring about this union or this uh, wedding, if you will, between non-governmental organizations working through the UN's Economic and Social Council and the other elements of the UN system to where you'd have this facade of democratic involvement on a global basis behind the UN's policies, particularly with respect to the redistribution of wealth. And then 2001, they had the Small Arms Conference, or for lack of a better way of describing it, Gun Control or Civilian Disarmament Conference at the UN that I attended as well, And By that time, it had become pretty plain to me that the real problems that we were having with respect to the United Nations, which is a bad idea from the beginning, don't get me wrong, anyway, you look at the UN in terms of its origins or its principles or policies, it's a bad idea, but the problems we were having with the United Nations had to do with the role it was playing as an instrument of policy uh, from the perspective of, people in the West who actually cut the checks, you know, the major financial institutions behind the United Nations, the tax-exempt foundations that were helping to create policy through the UN, and the uh, governments in Washington, D.C., and London, and a couple of other Western capitals. Uh, The UN was primarily the threat that it was to our sovereignty and to our liberty and to Christian values because it had become a tool of these Western policymakers and if you sundered that connection, the United Nations would probably collapse beneath the weight of its own absurdity. But for 10 or 12 years uh, with the New American, I would go to these conferences and summits, and I would go to other events as well. I'd cover, for instance, conferences the American Bar Association having to do with terrorism. I went to um, a forum at the University of Chicago, University of Illinois Chicago, which is where Bill Ayers the uh, notorious Weatherman terrorist teaches. I think Bernadine Dorn uh, teaches there. No, she's in the Northwest, I think, Northwestern. But mm-hmm. um, but uh, the University of Illinois-Chicago in 1997 had a big uh, conference on terrorism that was intended to be a training seminar for law enforcement from throughout the country. And in the opening session of this conference, you have a spokeswoman for the ATF throw up a PowerPoint slide of herself standing next to Ar- Yasser Arafat and uh, talking about how the ATF was helping to train Yasser Arafat's uh, police forces, of which he had five or six at the time. He had this constantly expanding constellation of secret police forces. And this disclosure was made behind closed doors to law enforcement. It wasn't for public consumption. She wasn't aware that there was a reporter in the room. And this happened about a week after a horrific bombing had taken place in Jerusalem. And so I walked him through afterwards and handed my card following her presentation and said, could you tell me a little bit more about that? And her eyes went agog and she said, well, that's not the sort of thing that would want the public to know. And I'm thinking, well, obviously that's exactly the kind of thing the public needs to know. And through on-site reporting of this sort, uh, it became clear to me uh, that uh, we're dealing here with a political structure, a political mechanism, an apparatus that is really designed to enrich certain people who consider themselves to be above and beyond accountability in ways that uh, are injurious to the rights and the freedoms and the prosperity of the rest of us. It's really a feudalist system in a lot of ways. It's its very cynical, it's thoroughly corrupt, and it's pretty much exactly the opposite of what our founding fathers had hoped that our, our country would have by now in terms of a, an ordered republic ruled by a constitution that was intended to buttress a society ruled by God's law. And so that's something of a taste of what my professional background was like before I went independent in uh, late 2006. Um, I have also, in addition to the blog that you mentioned, Pro Libertate, I've been writing on a freelance basis for a couple of other publications such as the American Conservative magazine. And doing quite a bit of radio outreach. Uh, I'd usually do three or four uh, fairly significant radio interviews a week. And uh, I've published uh, five books. Uh, most recently, uh, my most recent book is entitled uh, "Liberty in Eclipse: The War on Terror and the Rise of the Homeland Security State." And uh, that's been published through the Welsh Foundation, which is an organization for which I work in um, the capacity of uh, editor-at-large. I helped edit some of their online and uh, some of their other media offerings. And uh, Liberty and Eclipse came out about two and a half or three months ago, and it follows in the train of a number of things that I had done, both at the New American and with uh, respect to the video medium, uh, documenting the rise of a lawless Police state, although I don't like to use the expression police state. Uh, I prefer to call it a garrison state or now a homeland security state because when people talk about a police state, they tend to miss a couple of very important uh, differentia that distinguish a police state from a normal society. One of which is the militarization of the police and their conversion from an instrument of uh, cultural peacemaking to an instrument of cultural oppression. Uh, I've lived in a couple of countries where the police are militarized and under the political control of a corrupt elite, and I'm seeing many of the same symptoms, actually. I've seen them for the last decade or so, and they really have sort of flowered into their full uh, malevolence during the last few years of the the Bush administration in trying to help people understand how we got to where we are and where we're likely to go is the point of this new book, Liberty and Eclipse, I'm working on a couple of other book projects right now, one of which would have to do with the uh, prospect of conscription, uh, which uh, is a subject in uh, Liberty and Eclipse that occupies the the next-to-last chapter of that book, and um, some other things having to do with what's going on in the culture, and with respect to my uh, personal background here, I'm uh, Married a father of five children, my lovely wife is named Corinne, and our five children are William Wallace, Isaiah Athanasius, Jefferson Leonidas, Katrina Antigone, and Sophia Faith. They're uh, in ages, uh, in descending order of age, from 10 to 3 years of age. Um, as a matter of fact, Isaiah turns 7 in less than a month, and we live in a little town called Payette, Idaho, which is about uh, 60 miles from uh, Boise. It's on the western side of the state of Idaho. It's a community of about 7,000 people. Uh, We live here fairly close to my uh, parents who live across the border in Oregon and my wife's parents who live in Nevada. And we're all creatures of the western United States, uh, both very much in terms of our our cultural background and in our outlook on things. Um, The western United States tends to be Inhabited by people who take a little bit more skeptical view of the supposed benevolence of government than other people live in other parts of the country. I think.
0: Well, it's interesting. Uh, I, I was just catching the names of your your children. Uh, it sounds like they have uh, a common Greek connection. Are are you uh, anyway Greek in origin or anywhere from? <laughs>
2: You're the first person who picked up on that without <laughs> my highlighting that fact. <laughs> no, I don't know how it happened that we have uh, four children with Greek names, either given names or middle names. Um, obviously, um, in the case of Isaiah, you know Athanasius is a Greek name. Mm-hmm. It was suggested to me by a friend who's a Roman Catholic. And uh, the thing that I like the best about uh, the biography of, of Athanasius, or Saint Athanasius as Roman Catholics refer to him, is the fact that uh, he was um, indomitably committed to the truth as God had given him the wisdom to understand it, in spite of the fact that he was, I mean, I a minority of one at one point. Uh, and his uh, his famous statement was that uh, one man with the truth is a majority. And I, I was just so taken with that that I thought, it's pity I can't actually name our son Athanasius, but we'd chosen Isaiah for his name. And it's appropriate. Of our five children, Isaiah, who turns eight in July, as i would mentioned, is probably the one who's most interested in the Bible and the one who's most passionate about uh, things having to do with uh, God's rule and God's kingdom. And then um, <clears throat> Jefferson Leonidas, of course, Leonidas was the one who led the, the 300 Spartans at the pass of Thermopylae to hold off the Persians. And um, Leonidas was somebody I'd long admired. And uh, as I as I was writing my uh, my third book, uh, Global Gun Grab, uh, the expression uh, molon nabe, or come and get them, uh, had become uh, something that I'd been quite taken with, because a lot of the the gun rights activists use that as a way of expressing their defiance in the face of the gun grabbers. If you want our guns, you're going to have to come and get them. And of course, Molonabe is, was the famous call of uh, Leonidas and, and his Spartans in the Spartans in the face of the Persians. You know, if you, right. want, if you want our weapons, you're going to have to come and get them. Um, in the case of uh, Katrina Antigone, I have long had a great admiration for the character of Antigone, that, that tragic character from the Sophoclean play, uh, because when she was ordered by her, I believe it was her uncle Creon, the the corrupt, tyrannical king, to uh, allow her... Well, she was she was rebuked by Creon because her brother, who had staged a rebellion against that evil king, had been killed in battle, and his body was outside the walls of the city, and she had gone and uh, ministered to his body in nature that it received a respectful burial rather than being devoured by carrion beasts, as the king had decreed. And she was rebuked, Antigone was, for displaying defiance to the king's order and making this gesture of respect to her brother's memory. And she said to him that uh, God required that she honor her family before she honored the king. I read that in high school. In uh, I believe tenth grade literature class, and I said someday I want to name my daughter Antigone. (laughs)
1: It'd
2: be really, it'd be really difficult for um, a teenage girl saddled with that name. uh, Pray, you know, teenage girls are always prey to the insecurities of adolescence in ways that boys aren't, and uh,
0: at least until we reach middle age.
2: Yeah, except there you go. <laughs> at least I hope so. But uh, I, I didn't really want to exacerbate things for for an adolescent daughter trying to explain to people why she was named after somebody who ended up buried up to her neck, <laughs> you know, at the orders of her uncle, and, and they wouldn't know the whole story, and they wouldn't know why it was that I thought that Antigone was somebody who, who was so uh, commendable to um, as an example to youth in terms of her priorities. You know, her priorities were God, family, and then the country or then the then the government you know she lived in the monarchy unfortunately a lot of people have that unfortunate reality to contend with but she understood that uh, no government has the right to order us to disrespect to display disrespect to our families that our families are more important to us in the ultimate scheme of things than any government under which we happen to live and I wanted that attitude to Mm-hmm. To take written flourish among our children, mm-hmm. and then of course Sophia, our youngest, our three-year-old, uh, her name means wisdom, and uh, so her name is wisdom and faith. And I think if you can, if you couple those two elements, you know the best of the best of Athens and the best of Jerusalem, as it were, that you've got a good foundation mm-hmm. for living.
0: Well, it sounds like to me you've uh, incorporating in your children all these various aspects of your own personality, in your own background. And, uh, Aspirationally, sub- <laughs> perhaps. I mean, <laughs> let, let's make let, let's make this very clear. The things I aspire to learn, mm-hmm. and
2: uh, the the traits I aspire to emulate, are mm-hmm. are I think adumbrated in the the names of these children.
0: And also inspire in others. Yes, I also aspire to to uh, to promote exactly. in others. Uh, you don't happen to know the the uh, similar uh, ethnic background for Doctor Future, do you?
3: No, you don't I had not have that on the tip
0: of your tongue. Well, I was I was looking for that, so I haven't haven't discovered that. Uh, you know, one last thing before we move on to our content here is It's interesting that you mentioned about the spirit of the West uh, being a fir- basically a fiercely independent spirit. Mm-hmm. Because if we were if we were to stereotype, which I tend not to like to do, but if we were to do that, uh, something else that many people often associate with people in the West is a um, uh, a skepticism of of religion, and of non nature based spirituality, if you might say, and, and this is sort of yeah. A, uh, but you know, let's let's face it, uh, uh, people that are in formal church environments, it's the percentage is much lower when you go out west versus the rest of the country. But as I understand it, you are, are fiercely committed to the Lord Jesus Christ, to the Word of God, and and Scripture. Am I am I not correct? And you base your belief on that worldview.
2: I have to. <laughs> I mean, once one becomes aware of God in a way that is imprinted upon his soul, it changes the way that person looks at the world and looks at the life that's been given to him. And my background, and uh, the background of my wife in that matter, we're both raised in the Mormon Church, which is very much a part of the Western cultural landscape. Well,
0: that's, that's right. <clears throat>
2: I mean, the the greater part of uh, the westward expansion of the United States uh, can be traced to two great uh, pioneer undertakings. There was the Oregon Trail, and then there was the Mormon Exodus from uh, the Midwest. And um, so, obviously, that's left both of those, both of those undertakings, left a, a very deep impress on the region. But uh, we're from Idaho, and uh, I was born in southeastern Idaho, which is part of the old uh, state of Deseret, the old territory of Deseret under Brigham Young. And I was adopted by a Mormon family at the age of six weeks, and raised in the the Mormon Church. And um, at the age of twenty, while I was serving a mission for the Mormon Church, had a born-again experience that changed the way I looked at the faith into which I had been adopted, and changed the way I perceived uh, the Lord, whose name I had not really contemplated, and whose works I had not really understood. it's it's really difficult for me to talk about this and retain my composure, but my my experience consisted of having it made very clear to my soul that I was incapable of saving myself and that uh, for whatever reason, and, and I, this this is a mystery that is imponderable, I suppose, to, to everybody. It's certainly one that I, I cannot fathom, one that I cannot adequately understand. For some reason, the God who created me uh, was willing to send his son to die for me and uh, to to pay the forfeit of my sins uh, when I was perfectly incapable of doing so for myself. And I still cannot understand why this was done. All I can do is be grateful that it was done and try to understand, in terms of the practical teachings of, uh, of our Lord while he was uh, walking among men, how to apply... Uh, the love that he has extended to us uh, in the political realm and, and thereby to, to make both uh, human liberty and, and peace among people possible. I mean, it, it, it's clear to me that there is no way that we can enjoy, ultimate in ultimate sense, uh, the freedom that God intends for us to exercise or to live at peace with each other unless we live the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there are ways of life that, that, in some ways, borrow some elements of uh, what we were taught, what we are taught in the New Testament. Um, you know, this is something C.S. Lewis has talked about. He's talked about what he calls the Tao, the idea that there is this settled and established uh, law that God has ordained for man to live by, and it resonates with the best of of all these uh, various moral traditions. Uh, this is sort of a, a Romans chapter 1 type proposition, you know, we're left without excuse because the order of nature does testify that there is a creator, and the order of nature, both in terms of what we observe around us, and in terms of what goes on inside our hearts, uh, testifies that there is a law that we're supposed to live by, so we're all left without excuse in that respect. But in order to live a life in, in the fullness of freedom, and to live at peace with each other, we have to know Jesus Christ, mm-hmm. and it seems to me that as important as politics is, and as important as these arguments are over how we will be governed and how we will live with each other, uh, that they're all subordinate to the to the greatest question, which is what do you think of Jesus Christ?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And so uh, now that I'm I'm an independent journalist, and that was the result of developments that. Um, I'm still trying fully to understand. It was something that was not my idea to begin with. But now that I'm an independent journalist, I'm actually freer in some ways to try to pursue the exposition of political questions in the light of that larger question, which is what do you think of Jesus Christ and what do you think of his teachings?
0: Mm -hmm. Now, um, do do you find what you just shared with us right now is something that uh, you're offered an opportunity to share frequently in your other radio interviews?
2: No, <laughs> unfortunately. Occasionally I am. I do a couple of interviews every week with a good friend in California who doesn't mind. As a matter of fact, he almost insists that we talk explicitly about the, the nature of, of man and the nature of politics in the context of Christian truth. And so that's that's very worthwhile, and, and it's a great relief when I can do that because otherwise I get very frustrated <laughs> at trying to explain to people why certain things are more important than others. But i found that when I'm doing most uh, secular radio programs, it's considered to be not only off-putting but uh, very bad form. Uh, in large re- <laughs> in large measure, I suspect, because uh, we, live, we live in a time now um, in which it's assumed that if you speak the language of Christian conviction in the context of politics, you're trying to do so for partisan advantage. And that's not my intention. Never, It never has been my intention. I mean, Jesus isn't signed up to play for one side or the other. And it's a, a form of blasphemy to suggest that he has done so. Mm-hmm. So it's a very common form of blasphemy, unfortunately. And it's getting to the point now where, where both sides... Uh, across this very narrow partisan divide that separates these two branches of the same establishment party that we call Republicans and Democrats. Both sides are trying to play that game now, and Mm -hmm. and in most instances I find it as sickening as uh, most other people do.
0: Well, I want my listeners, uh, now that we're going to get into uh, the the meat of our discussion, to keep your testimony in mind this week when they uh, listen to the provocative uh, comments that you're going to make and recognize the firm foundation from which you establish uh, your positions with a, with a strong biblical standpoint that you you base your fil- philosophical understanding uh, now I, I want to move forward for this because you 've talked about the pandora 's box of politics, and this yeah. is something that will probably cause quite a stir with our listening audience and and By the way, before I forget uh, be sure and pass on to your other uh, radio host friend that we 'd love to have them on future quick as well too all right it 's nice <laughs> to find a network of other people who are who are striving. Uh, to understand these very, very difficult issues together. Uh, our topic today, and uh, I consider this our maiden voyage together, uh, is very broad in scope. And uh, it's, it's somewhat difficult to launch out on, but I'm going to start it this way. And, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to speak from my personal observation here, Mr. Gregg. Uh, right. Based on my personal observation as a lifelong conservative evangelical uh, person in, in in good standing, uh, I see American evangelicalism today and its leadership uh, as largely rallying around a candidate right now who has gone on the record as as labeling them as agents of intolerance mm-hmm. and has been connected to a party that routinely exploits them and seemingly has no respect for them whatsoever. Uh, and, and they've also supported at least one other minister candidate I can think of who, who I, I recollect hearing in, in one of the debates uh, something to the effect that uh, he would look forward to sending Iranians to hell. And, uh, and certainly has defended torture, uh, uh, preemptive wars, and the loss of civil liberties, all in the guise of defending against the, quote, greatest evil of terrorism, while holding fast to some facade of political power, and often strategizing their activities in some type of closed-door meetings and secrecy by groups like the Council on National Policy and other groups like this. Are my characterizations accurate, and what would you add to the state of American evangelicalism today in in these areas?
2: I think your characterizations are fairly accurate and entirely tragic, and I think that they represent what could be called the outworking of of the the seat-at-the-table fallacy, the idea being that what's really important is first to obtain power, and then to do good things with the power that you obtain. The problem is that what our Lord said is that you seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and then these other things will be added to you. If you're doing what you should be doing, in other words, as a Christian, if you're living the way you should be living, if you're espousing correct principles with respect to the teachings of the two great commandments, love the Lord thy God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself, then... In the political realm, you'll enjoy the success that God ordains for you. It's, in a sense, placing one's trust in the ephemeral political institutions that are a creation of our fleshly nature in order to accomplish something that is supposedly of transcendent internal importance. And it doesn't work that way. You have to have your eternal priorities down pat first. You have to live by them as if you believe in them. And that, of course, applies to politics as well. It's an all-encompassing worldview. There are no exceptions being made here to the mandate that we are to seek to vindicate the Lord's righteousness first and foremost. And with respect to how this applies to foreign policy and domestic policy as well, these all fall under the heading of the Second Great Commandment. We are not required in the course of loving our neighbor to permit our neighbor to commit aggression against ourselves or against our families. As a matter of fact, as Christians, we're very pointedly instructed in the epistles of Paul, to defend our households. And so there is a legitimate role for defending ourselves against the aggression of anybody, whether you're talking about uh, people who are from foreign countries and foreign cultures who may aggress against us, or more commonly the aggression committed against those who govern us here within the shores of our own country. Uh, The aggression, of course, when it uh, takes the form of a threat to life and liberty and property, the aggression as a crime is completely equal, whether you're talking about something which is being done by savagely bearded jihadists or something that is being done by clean-shaven people in very expensive suits who appear to be uh, more or less identical to us. But uh, I'm just astonished how frequently people who profess to be Christians, uh, when they're talking about warfare... They're talking, for instance, about the idea of protecting ourselves against people who kill uh, innocent human beings on, uh, on, a, on a wholesale basis. How their prescription for dealing with this problem is wholesale slaughter of human beings. <laughs> I mean, what they're saying essentially is that we have the right preemptively to attack the homes and the families of people living at a you know, great distance from us. Uh, in order to protect our homes and families from the possibility that someday these people may be a threat to us. And often you hear people say something to the effect of uh, what you quoted uh, Mr. Huckabee as saying, namely that uh, we shouldn't uh, leave unimproved an opportunity to send these people to hell. No Christian should want send anybody to hell. I'm trying to find some codicil to the Great Commission here that permits us as Christians... The luxury of wanting to send people to hell.
0: Should we're that be a wa- be
2: preaching salvation?
0: Should that be a wake-up call to us when we hear words like that coming out of our collective mouths, that we need to stop and meditate on where we're going? Yeah, we should
2: be astonished and horrified. I mean, we are in a situation right now where, to paraphrase Chesterton, we're losing the capacity for astonishment at our own actions. You know, we drop two thousand-pound bombs on residential neighborhoods in Baghdad, and we don't consider this to be terrorism. We see an entire City, an entire suburb, Fallujah, cordoned off and subject to annihilation through the use of helicopter gunships and large high-yield explosives and white phosphorus warheads. White phosphorus being a form of chemical warfare. And we don't consider this to be terrorism. You know, we hear we are people talking about the supposed right we have to export lethal violence to all four parts of the world against people who may someday pose a threat to us we don't consider that to be state terrorism and we have to understand that there's one standard that will judge everybody and we don't enjoy some happy exemption from that standard on account of the supposed fact that america is god's chosen country you know that's not the way it works you know if god has conferred beneficences and favors upon a country he actually expects more of them you know in terms of the way they conduct themselves in the world Uh, With respect to the issue of torture, which is something about which I've written a great deal and a subject about which I'm very passionate, uh, I'm still trying to figure out in what way uh, people who reverently invoke the name of Jesus of Nazareth could have anything to do with the torture of another human being. Our Lord was tortured. We put him there. It was our sins that did that. You know, the Romans were the, the proximate agents in terms of of inflicting the torture, but it was our sins that did that to the Lord. And it was an unmistakable token of the savagery of that pagan, heathen empire that they would torture our Lord. And yet we find ourselves now, as a professed Christian empire, uh, countenancing the torture of innocent people, including the torture of children, according to the policy guidelines laid down by the Bush administration, Uh, presumably because we're better than they. And once again, these are the sort of things where if people are really paying attention to the implications, the moral implications of what we permit our government to do, and people are in any way willing to apply the strictures of Christian standards of living and Christian standards of conduct to what our government does, uh, they would be arrested in their tracks right away and say, how do we get back from the precipice we find ourselves confronting right now? At least I, I think so.
0: Wow. So so in other words, you're saying that we now have policies that authorize the torture of children so that ultimately we can save ourselves from the barbarism of our enemies.
2: Yeah. <clears throat> the thing is, I, I often say that uh, the biggest threat that we ever confront is not uh, that posed by some some distant primitive regime in the Gulf or in the Arab world at large, the biggest threat we confront is the government that rules us every day because that's the threat to which we are most consistently exposed. I've often said that the IRS is a bigger source of terror in the lives of Americans than Al-Qaeda, and it has to be that way because the IRS is in a position to confiscate our wealth and imprison us if we don't cooperate, and enlist the force of people who will kill us if we insist on ma- and putting up resistance to the exactions imposed on us by our government. And when we authorize the government ruling us to engage in torture and to engage in wholesale bloodshed uh, without the the uh, proper authorization of law through a declaration of war to begin with, and without a proper uh, cause that can be justified in the context of, of just war teaching that we're actually making our situation that much worse because the government that rules us is becoming an engine of terror and torture. Uh, John C. Yu, who was the chief architect of the legal rationales for torture in the Bush administration, actually was asked about the extent of the president's discretionary power to order torture during the course of a debate with a uh, human rights activist and and law professor from Notre Dame. I believe this is in uh, 2005. And he was asked if it would be permissible for the President of the United States to order the torture of a child in order to get the parent to relent, Uh, a parent who's in the custody of the United States, suspected of terrorism or involvement in uh, insurgent warfare against the United States. And uh, what John C.U. said was that would be acceptable. It depends on why the President would consider this to be appropriate. And uh, the specific example used was, would it be possible for the president to order that a child's genitals be crushed in order to torture that child so severely that the parent would relent? again, you said that would be within the discretionary power of the president. In what sense can somebody who would authorize this, or who could countenance this, claim to be following a Christian standard of conduct? How could somebody who would authorize that type of conduct on behalf of a government that supposedly re- represents us consider himself to be in compliance with Christian canons of, of uh, the prosecution of a just war and some concept of the state as being subject to law and
0: uh, if Christians policies lo- that can conduce toward liberty? If Christians look the other way in, in aspects of that, are they in a degree complicit
2: well, in our system, certainly, because it's the the proud boast of our, of our system that it is a, a system in which men are ruled by law and accountable to the electorate, accountable to the people. I do think that if you're not doing everything you can to condemn what our government does when it does things of this sort, that to that extent, if you become aware of it, you become complicit in what it's doing if you're not actively opposing it. Particularly now when we're talking about the... The early stage of this affliction, I mean, granted, torture has been around since time immemorial, and if you take a look at the conduct of American forces, for instance, in the Philippines, following the Spanish-American War at the turn of the 20th century, when uh, the use of what we now call waterboarding was quite common, uh, the conduct of forces uh, controlled by the United States in previous conflicts of that sort has of not exactly left our nation covered in glory, but at least there was in uh, the Philippine uh, counterinsurgency war and in Vietnam, there were instances where people would speak out in great and passionate detail against the practice of torture. It wasn't normative, in other words. It was it was seen as something that was a violation of the laws that we live by and the standards that we have set for ourselves. And that was true was, uh, as late as the Vietnam War, when there were episodes of torture, there were... Um, General officers uh, who would issue, uh, and I've got I've got copies of them, and the, the original, actually the originals that were lent to me by a friend who was serving in Vietnam at the time, where in the the newspapers that were being published for the benefit of the various uh, uh, army units in Vietnam, the general officers were saying, no, it is utterly impermissible to torture POWs, let alone civilians who suspect of, of being. Uh, in league with the enemy Uh, that's that's not only unprofessional but it's a crime against uh, the conventions of warfare that that bind our conduct as professional soldiers now for the last 4 or 5 years and every every week it seems we have another disclosure in detail as to what's been going on Uh, torture has been added to the toolkit and it's been made normative in other words that's now the standard the standard is that uh, if the president authorizes it or if somebody working for the president authorizes it, whether you're talking about uh, that form of controlled drowning that we call waterboarding, whether you're talking about the use of stress positions or the uh, the deprivation of uh, of food or water, you're just talking about the uh, sleep deprivation, that's an old KGB tactic, keep somebody up. Uh, for for, uh, day after day, week after week, until the person literally loses his mind. That's something which has now been authorized. As long as these things are somehow seen as authorized up the chain of command and rooted in the President's presumptive authority as uh, Commander-in-Chief, then they're perfectly acceptable. That's the first time that's happened in our nation's history, and that is a dreadful line to cross.
0: Could, Could you also say that things like this that we allow to be used on other foreigners elsewhere... Are one day probably going to be used on our own sons and daughters and by our own government?
2: Yeah, that that's the assumption that we have to make. I mean, uh, you may be acquainted, and your listeners might be acquainted with that wonderful drama based on the life of Thomas More called A Man for All Seasons*. And there's a scene in a, in this play where Thomas More, whose life is imperiled because he's found himself at odds with. Uh, with uh, henry the eighth and of course henry was somebody who could uh, at his discretion have thomas moore beheaded and at the end of the play he did uh the the informant was somebody who dined at thomas moore's table and as he leaves the room thomas moore's uh, son-in-law says uh, find that man and arrest him and moore says i can't do that and uh what what charge should i arrest this man and, and uh son-in-law said well he's dangerous so my kids arrest him for being dangerous and uh, they end up having a little discussion where um Thomas More says, uh, "You, uh, you don't understand. Uh, the law that we uh, we uphold, you know, man's law, not God's law, is meant to protect all of us, even people like like this diabolical fellow here, and and his uh, brother, his son-in-law says something to the effect of, well, now you give the devil the benefit of the law.' And there's this wonderful soliloquy in which." Uh, uh, Thomas Moore says um, uh, certainly you know you you you're the type of a person who'd cut down every law in England to get to the devil but what would you do when the devil turned on you all the laws being flat where would you where would you go for protection this this land is planted thickly with laws man's laws not god's laws precisely to protect us he said yes i'd give the the devil the benefit of, of the protection of the law for my own protection and so when you deprive people of that protection, when you authorize our government to torture, first of all, if, if, you, if the government can torture somebody into confessing or into testifying against somebody else, and, and in both instances, uh, both of those examples, we have the Bush administration very active in pursuing both of those strategies. If the government can torture somebody into confessing or into accusing somebody else, why do we have a jury system? Why do we have trials? All that's necessary is to subject somebody to physical duress long enough to get that person to confess. And once the government gets the scent of blood in its nostrils and becomes habituated to using means of that sort, it will not discriminate between foreign and domestic matters. The other element of this that most people don't understand is that our government has already been involved in the torture of innocent people, including children. If you go back to the 1993 Branch Davidian debacle at uh, Mount Carmel outside of Waco, Texas, for 51 days, there was a siege that was underway in which the people who had defended their sanctuary against the criminal assault of the federal government in the form of the ATF raid on February 28, 1993, that raid had no colorable pretense of being legal. And uh, the ATF attacked that religious commune, despite the fact that the leader of that commune, the man who called himself David Koresh, had done everything he possibly could to prevent this from happening. Uh, For 51 days after that incident, uh, the inhabitants of the Mount Carmel religious retreat were subjected to psychological and physical torture, and the specific strategy that was employed by the FBI and a number of uh, psychological warfare operatives, including at least one consultant from the Soviet Union by the name of Igor Smirnov, the conscious strategy was to torture the children into making their parents surrender. That happened on American soil in 1993. That happened the better part of a decade before the government got involved in a very large way in using torture as an international uh, foreign policy tool. And so really you're taking a look here at, at a government that's becoming a full-spectrum uh, tyranny, both uh, foreign and domestic.
0: It's interesting it, you mentioned David Koresh because, if I remember correctly, didn't he often go into town and would have been relatively easy to apprehend if they had chosen to in that manner? Sure. Uh,
2: he could have been arrested while he was jogging. He could have been arrested when he went into town, uh, I believe it was every Wednesday night, to take part in open mic night at the local bar where he played lead guitar with the pickup band. He often went into town to conduct business of various kinds. He was a federally licensed firearms dealer uh, who obviously had to go on business trips in order to acquire stock and sell it. Uh, His movements, his whereabouts, were very well known to the authorities, including the local sheriff. The local sheriff, by the way, after the ATF attacked the Branch Davidian compound, as it was called, any time the government or the media starts referring to your home as a compound, you know you're in trouble. Right. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, your, your house could be a Quonset hut or a wiki hut, but uh, the instant you're under attack by the government, it suddenly metastasizes into an armed compound. Mm-hmm. But uh, And
0: one day, sheriff, I believe all Bible-believing, freedom-loving churches will be defined that way.
2: Oh, sure. Yeah, I can see that coming, too. <laughs> but uh, when the original raid on the, on the Branch Davidian Sanctuary took place, uh, the sheriff, whose name I can't remember off the top of my head, actually intervened and tried to prevent uh, further bloodshed. And when the FBI showed up on scene with the National Guard, uh, the sheriff was there saying, look, you know, this is taking place in my county. I'm actually the Supreme Law Enforcement Officer here. And the uh, FBI tried to have him arrested for impeding a federal investigation. And so he was somebody who was aware of the fact that uh, David Koresh could have been taken practically at any time. If he were an actual menace to the local community, the sheriff could have arrested him. That's how they should have proceeded. It's also well understood by those who studied this whole tragedy that in the fall of 1992, months before the attack took place, there were ATF agents who were going around the local gun stores there in Waco and asking questions about purchases made by uh, Koresh and some of the other people there in the Branch Davidian community. And one of them actually called up David Koresh and said, look, I've got a couple of people from the ATF here. They say there are some irregularities in your paperwork, uh, would you like to talk to them? And Carr said, certainly, put them on the phone, or have them come out here. Have them come out and take a look at my inventory. And they didn't want to cooperate. They were, tra- try- they were trying to fabricate a causa's belli. They are trying to fabricate some kind of a rationale, some kind of a pretext for an attack on that community. And that's the same mindset that led us into Iraq. If you take a look at what happened in 2002, 2003, there were any one of a number of opportunities that presented themselves, that could have been used to prevent the war, and the Bush administration studiously avoided taking advantage of any of them. There was actually an offer on the table being mediated by the Arab League for uh, Saddam Hussein and his putrescent sons to abdicate their power in Iraq and leave. They were, they were obviously looking for some kind of a payoff. They wanted to make, make sure that they were, they were well taken care of materially. But if you were trying to find some way of avoiding a war... Uh, the offer was on the table. Uh, Uday Hussein and Saddam would have left. They would have left with probably a couple of hundred million dollars in their bank accounts.
0: Which is a little less than what we've paid on this Oh, yeah. So I mean, that,
2: that's less than a week's worth of expenditure here. I mean, if you're talking just about uh, material wealth, but if you're talking about the irreplaceable wealth of human lives, both Iraqi and American, that's a bargain, you know. But uh, what they would have gone, they would have left, uh, the uh, oil fields would have been would have been managed by OPEC, and which, which isn't a good arrangement, but it's a better arrangement than what we have right now, and the Arab League would have supervised elections to set up a successor regime in Iraq. That's the offer that was turned down by the Bush administration. And of course, at the same time, he had uh, George Bush talking out the side of his mouth about how uh, basically they have to get out of town, you know, Saddam, Saddam and, his, and his sons have to get out of town. Well, they wanted to get out of town. (laughs) They were asking for safe passage and a couple of other considerations. And it was the Bush administration's intransigence that that led to that war in the same way that it was the intransigence of the ATF under first George Bush and then under Bill Clinton that led to the assault on the Branch Davidian Commune in 1993. Once again, the behavior of the government that rules this is consistent here with respectable foreign and domestic policy. When it decides it's going to make war on innocent people, all bets are off. The safeties come off, and there are no limits to the depths they're willing to descend.
0: Uh, th- that, that's very interesting, and I want to come back and talk to that a little bit more. And, and one thought I had when you were sharing about the when our enemy is our own government is the fact they have an extra tool in their tool chest, is that they can disguise themselves by setting up uh, other enemies, mm-hmm. uh, that are the presumed enemy of the public. And that, that's an extra tool they have that many of our, our overseas enemy may not have at their disposal. And I want to go back and just bring some closure To uh, this original question I asked you about uh, evangelicalism, and I'm I'm treading on very uh, careful uh, ground here, sort of a minefield, but I I would say that what you just shared in the last few minutes is something that many um, God-loving evangelical Christians were totally unaware of, and partially it is an issue of education at least. For, for the uh, the large masses uh, within this community r- r- right now we see an environment where we're, we're being sent a message in uh, mass uh, quite ex- quite a bit of expense uh, paid to it to tell Christians to vote for the lesser evil and to to basically decide what's in the best big picture interest uh, when I hear that I tend to think of in the Gospels when the religious leaders decided it was better to crucify Jesus for the better long-term interest of the religious state uh, of the temple and that it would not in- invoke the passions of the Romans. Um, what do you think about those those kind of thoughts, and uh, what do you think is going to be the end result of that position, and is there a better alternative?
2: Well, first of all, what I like to say to people who talk about supporting the lesser of two evils is that the lesser of two evils isn't because that's the evil that gets done. You know, people are always talking about avoiding the greater evil. Well, the greater evil in that analysis, and it's a form of sophistry, the greater evil in that analysis is never the one that is done. So it's entirely hypothetical. The tangible evil is always the lesser evil. That's the one people are told to choose. That's the one they select. So that's, by (laughs) tangible definition, the greater evil, because the, the other one remains purely hypothetical. And here, of course, we're talking about the prospect of supporting John McCain rather than supporting Barack Obama, and I don't have any enthusiasm for either of these candidates. And just a couple of days ago when I was on another Christian radio station, somebody called in and asked if it wouldn't be a good idea to support the Republican candidate, given the fact that uh, we're talking about control of the Supreme Court and the fact that a Republican president would be in a position to make several key judicial nominations, including a couple of sitting justices of the Supreme Court, I said, well, if you take a look at the record of Republican appointments to the Supreme Court, it really doesn't leave one suffused with confidence over the ability of Republicans to to choose sound constitutionalists, because a lot of the precedents I'm thinking specifically now of Roe versus Wade, the, the abortion precedent in 1973, for instance, a lot of these precedents involve decisions handed down by Republican-appointed judges or or judges themselves who are Republicans in terms of their previous uh, political activism. If I'm not mistaken, I believe Earl Warren was a Republican, and it was the Earl Warren court that's most notorious for judicial activism, at least in the minds of a lot of people. But you take a look at uh, what's happened in in more recent terms. Uh, the Republican appointed judges in the Supreme Court just a couple of days ago in a decision having to do with habeas corpus, which is the fundamental due process guarantee in Anglo-Saxon law, common law is a habeas corpus, that means basically that you cannot be imprisoned indefinitely at the whim of an executive, that, that the government has to justify your imprisonment. Uh, just a couple of days ago, the Supreme Court handed down a, a divided five to four ruling upholding the principle of habeas corpus as it applies to people who were accused of being unlawful enemy combatants, and detained by the government at Guantanamo Bay or elsewhere. And the way that this worked out is you had a couple of I guess you'd have to call them uh, moderate Republican appointees, uh, Souter being one of them, uh, who were uh, in the five-to-four majority, and then the four hardline conservatives of the sort that John McCain would appoint were the four-justice minority, saying in, in essence that, that habeas corpus is something that can be considered disposable in the interests of fighting the so-called war on terror, See, so you actually have four Republican judges, the hardline, uh, so-called conservative judges of the sort that John McCain says would be the, the template for his appointments, who would dispose of a key due process guarantee that's been foundational to the Anglo-Saxon concept of liberty under law since 1215. Now, that's the greater evil by any definition, if you're talking about uh, the judicial appointment aspect of the, the presidential campaign. Now, when you talk about the idea that uh, the evangelical church, the leadership of the evangelical church, has placed itself in the position of being apologists for the regime, in the interest of maintaining their seat at the table, I think that's that's a good analysis. It's very provocative, but very useful to take a look at the way that the religious leadership in uh, in uh, the in Palestine at the time of uh, Jesus' crucifixion, uh, how they comported themselves, uh, talking about uh, the need to to make this expedient sacrifice of one man rather than to have the entire nation perish in the uh, retribution that would be visited upon them by, by the Romans. Uh, that's that's a pretty good example, I think. I think that might be the definitive example of the seat-of-the-table fallacy, you know, where people have to attenuate their commitment to principle in order to retain their their given position, and now this is supposedly the best of the best of all possible arrangements, there was a time in the history of our country, and it wasn't that terribly long ago, when the uh, Christian Church would sit in judgment of the conduct of our government with respect to, among other things, matters of war and peace. You can go back and read some wonderful sermons from the mid 19th century where the leaders of uh, what we now call the the Baptist Church, for instance, would say that uh, that warfare is an unmitigated evil, but it's not being carried out for for purposes that are consonant with with Christian principle. And uh, this all changed in uh, the late 19th, early 20th century, uh, as the social gospel metastasized into a fighting faith, where people were treating the state as an instrument of God's will in the world. There's a wonderful book by Richard Gamble called The War for Righteousness, which talks about how it was pro- what we now call progressive or liberal Christianity that first brought about this commingling of, of the state in the, in the war-fighting capacity with uh, the, the evangelical Christian church. I mean, this, this became so, so blatant, so obvious by the beginning of World War I, that you actually had these hymns to the to the divine glory of the state being published in magazines like the christian century i mean one of them uh, actually published a poem the final the, couple of which said something to the effect that uh, the making of man is the job of the state <laughs> i'm trying to figure out how anybody professing to be a christian could believe that sentiment you know the the making of man the making of man both as a, as an individual created in god's image and in the redemption of his immortal soul is certainly not the job of the state. I mean, that's God's affair. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, we're, we're living now over a century later with the aftermath of this, uh, this illicit union, I think, and it's grown tighter and firmer under the reign of George W. Bush because people in the evangelical leadership seem to assume that he is one of us because he, he speaks the, the potted, uh, pious platitudes of uh, of megachurch sermons in in uh, at random uh, times when it's politically convenient for him to do so, and then he proceeds to to govern as if uh, none of these things make any sense or make or have any impact on his decisions.
0: Hmm. Well, that, that, that's amazing that, that you bring that up. Uh, what, what you were talking about the compromises in as far as the state and the incestuous relationship with the church reminds me much of what uh, Dr. Irwin Lutzer talks about in his book Hitler's Cross. On mm. what happened to the evangelical church in uh, the early days of the uh, the Nazi Empire uh, prior to World War II, uh, they they very formalized that that position and it created a crisis within the evangelical community itself. Hey, you know, I, I want to make clear to my listeners that this is not a a session to uh, to beat up on John McCain or the right wing. I, the uh, The issues of the left have not come up right now because uh, we clearly know uh, we have another major candidate that strongly believes in the slaughter, wholesale slaughter of children in the womb uh, under under our own discretion here on our own shores as opposed to uh, other shores and a host of of other issues that we would find uh, completely uh, unacceptable and I think as we get to the the whole concept of talking about Christian libertarianism, it becomes very clear that uh, going farther left is not the solution to the problems that we have in our country. But I have been seeing emerging a third way. And uh, this third way, which, which we've tried to document on our show since we've been on the air the last few years, um, sort, of, sort of relates to an observation I've made. Um, I, I often hear, uh, particularly from young people, uh, who in fact are, we have a large portion of them that are future Quake fans, that support liberty and support mm-hmm. other constitutional efforts like Ron Paul's campaign, for example, sure. that phenomena. Uh, many of those people are agnostics or atheists. Uh, they perceive evangelical right-wing Christians in a way that I can only describe in general as being oppressors rather than liberators. And that's just sort of my summary term. Uh, yeah. In defending, that, they're perceived as defending the powerful and exploitative and trying to force their individual personal morality and standards of uh, private conduct coercively on all Americans by the use of the courts and legislature, or at least that's their intent. Uh, you know, some of that characterization may be a mere minimally informed stereotype that they're imposing on us. Sure. uh To be fair, but there's still much of a ring of truth to it. I find uh, some in the community, like like for example, a Constitution Party uh, presidential candidate, uh, Pastor Chuck Baldwin, uh, and and I'll include myself and others. Uh, perceived that we have missed an opportunity to reach a generation by uh, appearing to them as hateful, arrogant, and uncompassionate, and focusing only on doctrine and words and not in actions, uh, even though doctrine is obviously critically important, and not providing leadership in the community by being our brother's keepers and championing the oppressed in light of God's word. I, I feel this perception is likely inhibiting our ability in these days to fulfill the Great Commission, to our generation, what do you think of this perception, as I've described it, and and how would you describe our perception as evangelicals by society today?
2: Well, it's ironic that you state it in quite that way, and you focus primarily on the perceptions of some of the younger and more more freedom fixated political activists who've been brought into the process by Ron Paul, and also by Barack Obama. I think, with respect to Barack Obama's campaign, they've been sold a bill of goods because I think Barack Obama is trading on manufactured charisma and institutionalized awe. That's a a marketing strategy. In the case of Ron Paul, he was talking about the Constitution and talking about the principles of liberty, and you've got somebody who had none of the media support that Barack Obama has earned uh, by virtue of being the the Democrat nominee. And so you have a really interesting phenomenon when you have these young people, college-age or high school-age people, are flocking to a 72 year old man who's by no means a dynamic speaker on the basis of what he says about the principles of freedom and it's a huge missed opportunity in many ways Um, Ron Paul is an overtly Christian candidate not in the sense that he wants to institutionalize the creeds of the church that he attends and not in the sense that he wants to enlist the power of government to achieve through coercion uh, a better and more moral society because he understands that's not the role of the state it's because he understands that we were created by our Lord to be free, that we were designed to be free. We were designed to live in a society that uh, makes it possible for us to express fully the talents and potentials that have been inserted into our personality and our makeup by our Creator. And he's somebody who's very serious about the idea that the government should not be emancipated from... God's law and that it should be subject to the golden rule and to the two great commandments. And if we had capitalized as evangelical uh, conservatives or libertarians, would capitalized on that message by trying to explain to people that the best way for all people to be free and the most moral way to conduct our affairs as a society would be to limit the role of government, the role of coercion in the lives of people, it would have been tremendously beneficial not only to the cause of, of freedom, the politics of freedom, it would have been beneficial to the cause, I believe, of Christianity. Uh, there's a, a very strong tradition going all the way back to the second third centuries of uh, the Christian era in which uh, Christianity was seen not only as being critical of the abuses of government power, but critical of the idea of coercion itself. You can see in the writings of some of the Antonicene fathers and uh, some of the early shapers of, of uh, Christian doctrine, uh, people like Oregon, for instance, uh, talk about the idea that Christians reject the idea of coercion in all realms of life. It's a pretty consistently libertarian message. You know, They teach the sound principles that are rooted in sound doctrine, They make these questions binding upon disciples as a matter of conviction, but they don't seek to to fuse that conviction with the coercive power of government. I mean, the power of government basically is the power to kill people unless they cooperate. That's not the Christian way, and it never has been. And I think that Ron Paul's campaign resonated with that principle, and people who otherwise may not have much interest in the Christian message, these agnostics and deists and and even atheists that you described in, in asking the question uh, found something very appealing in that element of Ron Paul's campaign, not understanding that it's rooted, firmly rooted, in the Christian tradition. And so I think that that's a huge lost opportunity. Now, often, ironically enough, I find myself, when I'm talking with people who are curious about what I've had to say about given issues, Um uh, being told something to the effect of, well, it's really interesting to talk to you because you're obviously a serious Christian, but you're not a jerk. <laughs> the expectation <laughs> being that I would be a jerk by virtue of being a Christian. Right. And that's because over the last uh, several years, not just the last eight years of the the Bush-Cheney administration, but actually going back perhaps to 1994 and the, the advent of the Republican-dominated Congress, or even the, you go back to the 1980s, the advent of, of the uh, Christian coalition and the moral majority, there's been this sense that uh, the real ambition on the part of Christians is not to bring government under the rule of law again, but to take this bloated and omnivorous beast we call government and simply turn it into an instrument of their values and their objectives. You know, that there are people more interested in getting the government to work for their partisan agenda than they are in bringing government back under the rule of law. And if uh, Christians had been united, or at least a, a large portion of the Christian population had been willing to enlist in the cause of, of bringing government back under the rule of law, I think that it would have, it would have been beneficial once again, uh, not only for the purpose of, of expanding uh, human liberty in our society, but in getting these people uh, who are serious about human freedom to start thinking about what it is about the Christian worldview – that encourages people to try to maximize human freedom. And that's part of the Great Commission. Once again, we're supposed to preach salvation to every creature, and we're supposed to take the opportunity in everything we do to try to preach the salvation message. And we can do it, I believe, even uh, before an audience as unreceptive as, as uh, hardened uh, college skeptics, uh, if we if we are maximizing what Christianity has to say about human freedom and human dignity because quite frankly these are Christian concepts these are innately Christian concepts the whole modern concept of the dignity of the individual the inviolable dignity of that individual's person uh, and and particularly those elements of of human liberty that have to do with the mind and the soul uh, this is something which was uh, given to the world through Christianity it incorporates the best elements of what the Greeks and Romans had to say, admittedly, on the subject of human freedom. But neither the Greeks nor the Romans nor any other uh, pagan culture, I don't use the term pagan here as a pejorative, I, mm-hmm. I used to specify. Right. Uh, in no other pagan culture, as estimable as their philosophers might have been or as as worthy as their achievements were, created this fully orbed concept of the dignity of the human individual as a unique creation in the image of God. That's Christianity. That's the Christian concept. And and even people who profess to be atheists or agnostics still speak that vocabulary. And if we had been willing to live up to the principles by virtue of the fact that we already have a common vocabulary, uh, the Lord, I think, could use that conversation to lead some of these people to Christ, which is what we should be trying to do at all times and in all circumstances.
0: Right. Well, in in a non coercive way, in a way that's not manipulative or deceptive exactly. of the people. You don't you being... don't
2: lead somebody. You don't lead somebody through deception. You certainly don't lead somebody through coercion.
0: That's... You know,
2: you you try to draw, or you or, or in the Christian sense, you know, the Holy Spirit operating through us. You try to be the means through which they are drawn to Christ, that they they make this choice, that there's something that resonates in their soul, that conduces them to, toward Christ. You can't force somebody to believe something or not to believe something. You can compel somebody under the threat of punishment or death to profess to believe something, but you can't really compel somebody to believe. And that's a critical distinction that that Christians, I think, sometimes forget.
0: Right. Well, you know, I I personally observed this through um, uh, my my discussions with uh, uh, Pastor Chuck Baldwin, as I mentioned earlier, who's who's the presidential nominee of the Constitution Party, which Mm -hmm. is the third largest party in our country after the Democrat and Republicans. Uh, when he accepted that nomination, he has made in his speeches uh, a very provocative statement that was very brave in light of his his fellow evangelicals that perceive him. Uh, he is an independent Baptist pastor, so I, I don't mm-hmm. need to make a- anything clear about um, his fixation on fundamentalism of God's Word. And he expresses clearly when it comes to the matters of freedom in our involvement with the state that Uh, It is time for all citizens, regardless of your religious persuasion or belief, wherever you see, we all have an equal state in providing a free and open society. And Christians should provide a welcome opportunity for people of other uh, considerations and beliefs to be able to trust us and to be able to protect them and to guarantee their liberties as well too, and and what he, and what he said potentially you know could alienate other people of faith who could totally misunderstand what he's saying. Yeah. He has gone clearly on the record of saying, uh, in my church, in where I am, and when I'm behind the pulpit, uh, I am completely clear in where I stand regarding Christ, and I will never compromise my beliefs or word one one iota or what I preach or what I say. But we need to provide an environment as citizens. To uh, protect and provide uh, support and a blessing uh, to those of other beliefs. And, and and he's told me off the record that he has seen people uh, who, as I described earlier, are not people of faith, but, but young people who are inquisitive, that, that he has earned their respect. And yeah. they know he's the real deal. They know he's not trying to manipulate them or coerce them or deceive them. And when they find that he is somebody that they can respect and they can understand where he's coming from, they're much more interested in his Christianity. And and he's not doing that in in a sense to try to to do a head fake on them as a a back way to sneak them in, although he would be more than happy to share the good news, just like either of us would, uh, with those who who seek and want to know more. But he he goes from a fundamental premise of respecting his fellow citizens and and also feeling a sense of duty to them as well.
2: (laughs) I've often thought about the fact that so frequently our Lord was in the company of people who were thoroughly disreputable and how in one of his most memorable parables, he chose a Samaritan as the exemplar and how he had that long dialogue with the with the Samaritan women of the well. He was reaching out to people who were considered to be outcasts because of their bad doctrine, you know, the Samaritans were defined by bad heretical doctrine, or by virtue, virtue is the wrong word, on account of their dissolute moral behavior, or on account of the fact that uh, they were people who were in occupations that were in bad odor with the public, the tax collectors. I mean, uh, people always talk about uh, uh, the fact that he chose a tax collector as a disciple, I said, yeah, he, he gave an opportunity to repent, is what happened. Right. But th- th- that's the, the whole point here is that uh, when you understand that the largest and most inclusive community to which we all belong is that of being sinners, and that uh, the fact that uh, we've received God's grace does not remove us from that cohort, we're still sinners. You know, we're still sinners re- redeemed by the grace of God, uh, by faith in Christ, and, and by the efficacious administration of of his atoning blood we're redeemed but we're still sinners and we're still people who occupy a sinful world in which all of us whether or not we choose to accept the gift of grace all of us have certain rights that are given to us by the creator and that uh, the second commandment means that we have to protect the rights of all of us that's what it means to love your neighbor I believe Uh, Once you understand that, then certain things are going to flow from those premises. I mean, you're you're not going to look upon uh, people who are Muslims or atheists or agnostics or people from denominations you don't respect as being less than you are with respect to their individual rights. And you'll understand that by defending the rights of my neighbor, I'm defending my own rights. I I can't escape the conclusion that when God talked about loving your neighbor as yourself, that he was teaching a principle, the political application of which is defend the rights of your neighbor as ardently as you would defend your own rights. And it doesn't matter whether your neighbor is somebody who is a heathen, or somebody who is a backslider, or somebody who sees matters of of faith and salvation on the same terms you do. The principle is that your neighbor is whoever God puts in your path. Mm -hmm. And your neighbor is somebody whose rights need to be defended as passionately as you would defend your own. If you take seriously this teaching that our Lord has given us as a way of organizing our lives.
0: And if you give him that cup of water in his name, it's as if yes. you're giving it to him.
2: Exactly. See, you see, you have to be able to develop the capacity to see the Lord's face in your neighbor, uh, to see the image of God. Not that that means that you'd see them as redeemed by grace, necessarily, but you'd understand that they are unique creations made in his image just as you are.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And that's one of the reasons why I'm so mortified over the extent to which even, or perhaps even especially in churches, we hear this drumbeat of dehumanization of the entire Muslim world, you know, when we hear somebody like the uh, Governor Huckabee talk about the opportunity to send Muslims to hell, or actually to send, I believe, to send Iranians to hell. Uh, first of all, not all Iranians are Muslim. I mean, there are Christians in Iran, there are Jews who live in Iran. There are Baha'i who live in Iran. The same thing was true with the Iraqis. I mean, Iraq had a large Christian population. It has been driven into exile because of our exercise of armed benevolence that began in 2003. You had Christian communities in Iraq that could date back to the, the founding of the early church. And they they've fled to other countries such as, well, Jordan and Syria, neither of which would be all that hospitable, quite frankly, uh, to Christians and uh, Syria at some point probably going to be uh, brought within the, the gun sites of uh, the regime in Washington as well. But I remember vividly uh, church service I attended at a Presbyterian uh, congregation in Wisconsin when we were living there back in 2002, <clears throat> just before a few months before the, the war began. And the pastor, a wonderful ba- na- man by the name of Bill Aker, uh, before we went to prayer that Sunday, said, I want to pray for peace. Uh, he's a Navy veteran. He's somebody who saw combat in Vietnam. He has a son who's in the Navy. And he said, I, I just want to pray that wisdom will guide the counsels of our leaders, that some way will be found to solve the problems in Iraq, short of warfare, because war is a curse. It's a plague. Even when it's necessary and unavoidable, it is a curse and a plague. And on top of that, it's not well understood that we have brothers in the Lord who live in Iraq, who... Not only uh, confront the <laughs> the unpleasant reality of living under that government right now, but in the event that there is a war, we'll have to deal with the fact that they'd be caught between two fires. They might be driven into exile. They might find themselves uh, coming under siege by their neighbors. They might be blamed by their Muslim neighbors for precipitating this onslaught. So it's just a horrible. Prospect that confronts us now, the idea of going to war, particularly in a situation like this where he was convinced war could be avoided. Now, he was the only conservative leaning Christian pastor I heard uh, in the months leading up to the war who actually brought that consideration to the forefront and discussed it with his congregation. You know, the idea that war is a curse, war is something that. If it's at all possible to avoid, we should avoid. You know, he talked in terms of the historic teaching of just war principles. Every other sermon I've been exposed to uh, was a gloss on the the passage from Ecclesiastes about how there is a time for war, but nobody would ever say whether or not this particular war was one that would earn God's favor. The idea was that Caesar had spoken and we had no, no choice but to obey. Well, the problem is that uh, there are limits to what Caesar can command of us. That's the... The, I believe the point of the parable you know Caesar can only ask of us that which is properly his and uh, Caesar has never been authorized to command us to go to war in an ungodly cause
0: well well um, I, I, I want to switch gears a little bit and really I only have a, have a few minutes here so we may right. not be able to totally cover this but uh, on, on the other end of the spectrum and uh, again we'll probably pick this up on a, on another day but uh We have folks on the other end of the political spectrum who see that the only way to be our brother's keeper, uh, and rightfully so, is to set up the state or the federal government as the messiah to fix our social and moral ills of society. Mm -hmm. Uh, This mindset has dominated our country probably since the New Deal, and unfortunately many do not see that they hand over the progress of our society, in my opinion, to a handful of elites. Uh, that I've observed that are affiliated with government, uh, often from a very small sliver of uh, backgrounds of of our public, uh, who desire to be our caretakers using our own money and make decisions for the little people, i.e. you and me, without any freedom for the citizens to take their resources elsewhere if they're dissatisfied with the services they receive. Other than the fact that these uh, elected officials uh, that we're talking about, that we rely on, are clearly a tool of the corporate state, the people who mm-hmm. actually provided the money to get them in office, serving their interests instead of us. Why is it a grave error to expand government in order to stave off the exploitation of the weak in society?
2: Well, that's a grave error on account of the fact that you only have sinful men available to run government. I mean, it's something James Madison pointed out, I believe, in Federalist Paper Number 51, that uh, you're talking about a government of men to rule men. And once again, all men are sinners, and there's nothing about being given government power that purifies the personality of the person exercising that power. You're talking about rather a magnification of the flaws that inhere in fallen human men. And so when you put government in a position of defining who will get what in terms of redistributing the wealth, the the product of one's exertions uh, from one person to another... You're talking about an arrangement that enhances the exploitation of the weak because it's the powerful who always have the ears of the people who exercise government power. And by definition, if you're on the receiving end of government's malevolent intentions here to take what you have earned and give it to somebody else, you're being exploited, you're being oppressed. It doesn't matter whether you started out that way, I mean, you could be very wealthy and then find yourself on the receiving end of that treatment. There's no justice involved in that. That's that's a crime. That's a violation of one of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not steal. Actually, a, a number of them, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not covet. Almost always it involves some element of uh, bearing false witness. But uh, when government gets involved in that type of activity, by definition, it is committing exploitation, it's committing oppression, it's violating the laws of God. Uh, One of the most interesting of uh, the Lord's statements was uh, who made me a a divider among men. In other words, when he was asked to reapportion more equitably an inheritance, uh, the Lord said, well, that's not what I do. That's Mm -hmm. not something that's that's proper to, to do. I mean, I'm not going to be trying to redistribute wealth in order to bring about somebody's goal of equity. And the parables that he taught with respect to the talents and with respect to other undertakings of that sort all resonate with this idea of stewardship. I mean, he recognizes that not everybody is going to have the same allotment of material goods. What everybody does have the same allotment of, however, are God-given rights. And so while there's going to be inequities in human society until he whose right it is to rule is reigning among us, you know, the poor will be with us always. Uh, The one thing that we have to do is to ensure that the government does not become an undisguised an unalloyed engine of tyranny and exploitation in the name of, of, of uh, evening out all these inequities, you know, and making straight the crooked timber of humanity. That's how you end up with uh, projects of uh, of the sort that led to the death of, you know, 60 million people in the Soviet Union and 120 million people in communist China. You know, they're trying to straighten out the crooked timber of humanity through the application of, of uh, brute force, and rather than straightening it out, they simply destroyed people by, by the tens of millions.
0: Well, I think we can see an example of how effective the uh, the civil state is in taking care of a people and being their watchkeeper in, in their treatment of the American Indian. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, they took over that, that role entirely to be the watchkeeper of her, and, and I think anyone who reads a handful of history books can see that the, the civil state was a tool of the corporate business state and how they administered their watch care in, in a welfare state to the Indian was completely oh, dictated by the, by the business state. And And uh, w- we would be arrogant to think that we would be treated any differently ourselves.
2: I keep trying to tell people if they say it can't happen here, it's because they've never studied the history of the American Indians. I mean, when you take a look, for instance, at uh, Chief Joseph Inez Pierce, one of my personal heroes, I'm in Idaho. I grew up in southeastern Idaho. Uh, Salmon River is not far from where I grew up, and of course that had a lot to do with the, the peregrinations of the, the Nez Perce. His father was converted to Christianity by Presbyterian missionaries, and Chief Joseph was raised as a Christian. <clears throat> he it never really took in Chief Joseph's case, because they got chased off of land that had been promised to them by sacred and sober treaties, And then eventually, when they refused to turn over the last tract of land in the Willamette Valley that they knew was theirs, the government, in the interests of politically connected businessmen who lusted after the gold and other resources in the Willamette Valley, went to the neighbors of the Nez Perce and had the neighbors of the Nez Perce sell the Nez Perce's land to the federal government. And when that happened, old Joseph, the father of Chief Joseph, took his Bible back to the Christian missionary who had baptized him and said, I don't want to have anything to do with this because obviously you people don't take it seriously. Now try to wrap your minds around what kind of a rebuke that is, not only to our nation but to the church. And that's perfectly typical of the way that the Indians were treated by the government throughout that rather sorry episode we call Manifest Destiny. You had on many, many occasions these people taken under the plenary authority of the federal government. As a matter of fact, uh, it was... uh, I believe uh, Carl Schurz, who was a, a 48er, a German communist, uh, who ended up becoming a general during the war between the states and whose uh, wife set up the kindergarten program, the first kindergarten program in Wisconsin. It was Carl Schurz who set up the Indian Reservation System as a project inspired by Karl Marx. And the the conceit here was that the government, uh, it headed by these uh, f- these uh, rapturously spiritual and and uh, insuperably decent people would be able to administer all the affairs of this childlike race called the Indians and uh, bring them uh, progressively into the enlightened society that had been created here in the United States. Well, it didn't work out that way. If you go to any Indian reservation today, as uh, James Watt pointed out decades ago, you'll see a perfect and, and very compelling illustration of the errors and, uh, and, and uh, fallacies of socialism
0: and don't we see the beginnings of this kind of relationship between the American public and their government as what we have observed in history books between the red man and Oh, government?
2: very much so. Very much so. I've often said, as a matter of fact, in a book I published in 1995 called Freedom on the Altar, in a chapter that dealt with multiculturalism, I said, if you want to understand the system that is envisioned for us by the people who would be our rulers, just go to any Indian reservation. They're talking about Basically, adapting that mindset and that that method of misrule for the supposed benefit of the rest of us
0: well then if uh if you wrote that in your book, then I must be on the right track then I have that thought <laughs> you're very kind we uh We are coming here to the end of the show, and I have covered approximately twenty five percent of what I wanted to cover with you today uh, <laughs> c- c- Can we have you back again uh, later in the summer? Certainly.
2: I'm very happy to come back, and I've really enjoyed the conversation. I must apologize for being so prolix, but you asked a number of questions here, I think, that really uh, merit a deeper examination than the soundbite approach that you hear on most radio programs, and I think that it's delightful that you have a format that allows us to explore these questions in such depth.
0: Do you think that we uh, are accomplishing something with having this kind of dialogue and putting it out for the evangelical Christian community to, to hear? I certainly
2: hope so. You know what? I think that the tide is turning in the evangelical community. I think people have had a surfeit of the superficial, and they're looking for something more substantive. And so I think that your program is probably going to have a really big impact on that.
0: Well, uh, I hope uh, my listeners who are listening to the show, uh, there's much, much more provocative topics that I want to discuss with you. Uh, and as much as your time will permit, I want to have you back to to do a more complete set of information because I feel like what you're sharing with us is truly foundational. And it's the kind of information my listeners need to uh, download from futurequake.com, make copies of, and give to their Christian friends. Uh, they need to pass it on, ask them to... Uh, just have their friends listen to it in the car or when they're at home, and ask them what they think about it. Discuss it. Send us feedback to our show. Uh, let us know so I can provide feedback back to Mr. Grigg. Uh, we we have uh, other people like Mr. Grigg, although no one quite like him, uh, that come on our show that uh, have had similar discourses with us here. But th- this whole effort, uh, and again, it's a voluntary effort of Future Quake is intended to try to enrich the family of God and for us together to grow, to learn, to to modify what we see as we're further enlightened as iron sharpens iron. And uh, my hope and prayer is that we've accomplished something today, this discussion. Uh, in, in our last uh, three minutes or so, can you let our listeners know how, how they can find uh, more of your writings and other <clears throat> material? Because if they're like me, they're riveted now by what you say and how you say it. Uh, just like I am, and uh, they're going to want to know how to keep up with your exploits from here on out. So, so please share us in the next uh, two or three minutes.
2: Well, I really appreciate that, thanks so much for the opportunity. This has been a real blessing for me this morning. The easiest way to find my writings is to go to my blog Pro Libertate. If you just simply type Pro Libertate into a, a Google search, you'll probably find it. And certainly, if you type Pro Libertate with Grigg, G R I G G, my last name, you should be able to find the blog. The web address for it is freedominourtime.blogspot.com Freedom in Our Time is one word, then blog, B-L-O-G, blogspot.com and another way to find it is to go to the webpage of the Welch Foundation. It's called The Right Source and the web address for that is www.rightsourceonline.com You can order my book, Liberty and Eclipse, from that website. It's also available at amazon.com. And if you go to rightsourceonline.com and you scroll down about a third of the way down the page, look at the left-hand side of the screen, you'll find my photograph, and there's a hyperlink that will take you to my blog, Pro Libertate. I try to update that between three and five times a week, as my schedule permits. Generally speaking, if you show up every other day, there'll be a new essay. And it's not a blog in the same sense that a lot of web blogs would be a running diary in which a writer would simply offer brief reflections on topics of interest uh, my weblog is actually more of a f- three to five times a week installment uh, 1200 to t- 2000 word polemic <laughs> i describe it as an investigative polemic i it right.
0: to... that's right it's not a stream of consciousness uh, just a set of thoughts like you might hear larry king say why he likes chocolate ice cream yeah you the three actually... dot
2: column exactly you, yeah. yeah it's not it's not a larry king three dot column on your web on, uh, on the internet it's it's meant to be more of a fully realized work of, of investigative polemics. It's, it's written in the, in the tone of a polemic. It's an editorial piece. I don't disguise my point of view, but I try to find some way of getting below the skin of an issue and, and flushing out the subject just a little bit more thoroughly than you'd find in some other weblogs.
0: All, all I can say is my jaw dropped when I read some of your research uh, re- regarding uh, the circumstances at um, Oklahoma City uh, at oh, the yeah. FDLS event. Uh, I was ashamed that I didn't know this information before, but I'm so grateful to you that you've taken the patience for people like me to methodically put this information together at, at great expense of your time, uh, and to completely change my worldview, believer to believer, based upon the information you shared with me that, that I, I, and people like me should have known all along. And with your permission, if it's all right, I'd like to put, uh, your, your blog address on futurequake.com. Uh, oh, by all means.
2: And it's in... It's immensely gratifying to me to know that you found it to be of value. I really appreciate that.
0: Well, to me, it's time well spent in that it's made a huge impact in um, my understanding of the world and of Christ uh, based upon the effort that you put into it. And ladies and gentlemen, uh, if you've not caught this entire week's interview, uh, I consider it essential that you go to futurequake.com, download the MP3s each day, Monday through Thursday. Uh, of this interview will be there for you to download and uh Mr. Greg can uh, can I ask you to look on your schedule for sometime time uh, uh end of July or in August that uh, I can schedule again to pick up where we left off for a Certainly. subsequent re- rebroadcast there's much more that needs to be said and much more that needs to be uh to broadcast and, and current events are going on so quickly that we may need even a, an update on some things with a with a more timely commentary
2: I, I think that will be very worthwhile, and I really appreciate the invitation.
0: And, and in the meantime, uh, um, send us emails. If there is a, a quick alert of something that my listeners need to know, we'd appreciate all if you'd even drop, drop a line to uh, to old Dr. Future here uh, in between those times uh, to let us know something that we need a heads-up on.
2: I'll do that as well.
0: Well, God bless you. Thank you so much for educating our listeners with uh, Tremendously challenging words That I know will we'll haunt the consciousness of our listeners As well as me And uh, until we meet again uh, next time We will we will say goodbye for now And we will look forward to talking to you again brother very soon
2: Very
1: good. God you. bless Nothing can change the shape of things Nothing can
0: change the shape of things to come. Welcome back to the Future Quake show I'm Dr. Future And I am Tom Bionic and, uh, this is our time every week where we do tomorrow's tremors or mm-hmm. today's review of the future's news. Yeah. And with no exception, we have a few different kind of stories, I might say, mm-hmm. uh, to, uh, to review. And so, uh, hopefully they'll give you some food for thought. Yes. Oh, maybe yeah. even a little amusement worked in. On mm-hmm. Fridays, we try to relax a little bit, uh, in what we do. We, we, t- we loosen our ties just a tiny bit.
3: Just a tiny bit. Um, and I think it's your turn to begin. I would, I, you know, I knew you were going to say that, but I tell you, I think you, as far as interesting stories, you have me beat. Oh, no. So I would like to hear your story first.
0: Oh, he's setting me up
3: here because... No, uh, it's a it's a very interesting we, story. and Well, we, we have a
0: stack of stories that we've gotten, uh some of them that are so important that lay, we even hang on to them for a few weeks. Mm-hmm. And this is one that just happened to be at the top of the pile, so to speak, that... uh it's really important, but it's it's sort of a different kind of subject matter, mm-hmm. but it's important that you know, and the motto of this story is to just tell you how sick and depraved your own government is, and uh, let me just tell you why. I entitled this Terrible Weapon for Use at Convention. This is from Fox News, by the way. This is Fox News reporting. Political activists planning protest rallies at the upcoming Democratic Convention in Denver have their stomachs in knots over a rumor about a crowd control weapon um, known as the – it's a cannon that uh, relates to defecation. I'll just say this. Now, I'm not trying to be crude here. I'm just saying that this is just something for you to see how crazy your government has gotten, okay, that might be unleashed against them. Now, this is um this is something that's actually being unveiled on our fellow citizens and it'll be on maybe on T V.
3: So so let me get this straight. You have there's a weapon that uh makes people defecate. Here's what it does. Let me just say okay. it is believed to be an
0: infrasound frequency ...device that debilitates a person by making them
3: defecate involuntarily. And so... Now, we're not making this up. We're not trying to be... And so, just to be clear, they've got this weapon that makes people defecate that they're deploying at the the Democratic Convention in Denver.
0: Yeah. I mean, this 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 sounds like something made up or like on Comedy Central or something. Mm-hmm. But this is our government doing this to our fellow citizens who are there expressing themselves well, what, outside with what their a, constitutional yeah, rights.
3: Yeah, I was gonna say what an insane well, I mean, commentary on, on liberty.
0: What bizarre minds back in the government are driven you know, and I come from defense laboratories where mm-hmm. I've worked in the past as a scientist. But you know, we never got into something this strange and bizarre. Uh, it says, uh, Mark Cohen, co-founder of Recreate 68, an alliance of local activists working for the protection of First Amendment rights, said he believes that this could be deployed at the convention in August to subdue crowds. Uh, we know this weapon and weapons likely have been used in other large protests before. Mm-hmm. Um, the, uh, and let me just say that at the Republican convention four years ago, uh Brother Alex Jones, who's a documentary filmmaker also a christian profess christian mm-hmm. was covering that on site with a documentary and he showed that the brand new um, pain beam weapons, the ones that like microwave weapons that boil the water on your skin that's incredible it's like you're burning on fire mm-hmm. that was designed for terrorists it was designed for crowd control in terrorist areas mm-hmm. were disguised, but they were discovered downtown. Actually being ad- uh, addressed against our own citizens. Mm-hmm. So let me let's. So this is not out of the. I mean, yeah. this is not some crazy. So let's,
3: let's say that explicitly. They were deploying weapons designed for terrorists uh, against our own citizens. Is that is that? Yeah, that's the bottom okay. line. Good. And
0: I, and I you know I'm reading this. This is not from some kind of satire. No, this is from Fox Fox News. News. Fox News is saying this. Mm-hmm. And. Uh, When you think about, for example, torture, for example, we're talking about torture of these incredibly evil terrorists that have terrible things planned for us. When you justify doing whatever torture is necessary to, quote, save lives, just remember this story, that we have these bizarre and diabolical weapons that were sold and paid for by our our citizens for terrorists that, surprisingly, are just being wheeled out against our own citizens. What do you think they're going to do with these terrorist devices, you know, once they are, or excuse me, uh, torture devices, once they've been sold to us as just being for the worst of terrorists. Picture your sons and daughters being subjected to this. Let, let me just describe it a little further. I think people get the point, but uh, uh, he describes this weapon as a sonic weapon used to disrupt people's equilibrium, cited eyewitness accounts that it's used during free trade agreement protest in Miami in 2003. I think these weapons were mostly intended for military use, and so their use in dealing with innocent protesters seemed highly inappropriate. The idea is that they may be field-testing them on people who are doing nothing more than exercising their First Amendment rights is disturbing. His group is preparing against a possible attack uh, by this and other crowd control measures by dispatching street medics at the convention trained in treating injuries and demonstration situations. It's all that we can do, Cohen said. Uh so um uh, is it a real threat Dr. Roger Schweinke, an expert ac- acoustician ec- acoustic ac- Acoustic I think
3: it's acoustician
0: acoustician Oh I'm so embarrassed it's okay. Yeah you're an audio guy just, you it know It was just Do you know a half lot of million, acoustic- half a million
3: <laughs> listeners well, What's the big deal
0: Sorry for the spitting. Uh ac- acoustician
3: Yes Whoo
0: uh, who appeared uh, on the Discovery Channel's Mythbusters in 2004 to test the weapon. So this has already been on TV. Okay. Told Fox News there is no scientific evidence that proves such frequencies cause involuntarily defecation. I've heard it do this before, and this is not the first reference I've seen in this uh Fox News story. Mm-hmm. When we conducted the low-frequency experiment uh, for the, it's called the Brown Note, episodes of Mythbusters, we testified a variety of low frequencies and no involuntary gastrointestinal motility was caused. Mm-hmm. But Schwanke acknowledged the low-frequency exposure did cause an adverse effect. Several people, including himself, reported abdominal discomfort, which was easily alleviated by moving a moderate distance away from the source. Mm. Uh, Adding to the uh, rumor is a refusal by Denver's Mayor John Hickenlooper to release details of what was purchased with the $18 million of a $50 million federal grant the city received to pay for convention security, despite a lawsuit filed by the ACLU. Cohen's group is calling on the administration to disclose what measures will be taken. In a statement released to Fox News, city spokesman Sue Cobb said, um, commenting on specific security preparations is not helpful to ensuring their effectiveness, hmm. also being having them exposed, obviously, I can say, however, that all of our security related purchases for the convention will comply with federal city requirements. I am working closely with the Department of Justice to ensure that the fifty million dollar federal g- security grant is spent on personnel and equipment uh, in a manner required by the grant denver 's police department wouldn 't comment on the tactics that will be used during the convention. But a spokesman said that we do support and encourage people to express their views safely in a manner that respects the rights of others along with laws and ordinances of our city. But Glenn Spanguolo, why me this one? Spagnuolo, Mm -hmm. uh, also with Recreate 68, isn't taking any chances. He said that he has no doubt that Brown don't exist and is preparing his group for confrontation. Whether it causes someone to, to defecate or not, I don't know, he said. But what I do know is that it causes a person to be disoriented and lose their equilibrium, resulting in a nauseous feeling in their stomach. More troubling to uh, Spagnuolo is the active denial system, or ADS, a ray gun used to send high levels of microwave frequencies that cause a burning sensation to the skin.
3: And that's exactly what you were talking about earlier right. when they Same deployed that at the Republican National Yeah, it was already Convention.
0: there. So, I mean, this is not a reach. I, I know this is a bizarre, outrageous story, but I read it simply because to tell you how crazy your own government is getting, and they're taking your tax dollars to do this stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and as far as the effect on the lower GI kind of stuff, that's Mm -hmm. been reported in a bunch of other places. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just sadistic. He says it's been used as an indiscriminate weapon, the ADS, and that no long-term testing on what happens to the body when exposed to these kinds of microwave frequencies has existed. Uh, He believes that Raytheon, the company that manufactures the weapon, is planning to test a limited-range civilian version on protesters in Denver. Before proving its use in places like Iraq.
3: So they're using it on us first. And then they're going to, once it's safe, they're going to use it on terrorists. Yeah. Nice. Well, we don't want to make sure
0: we do anything too bad to terrorists. So, well, I me, mean, but but our government, boy, you know, it's so funny. If people only knew where I came from, the kind of, you know, conservative, right-wing, regular, trust our government, go get them mm-hmm. background. Uh, and and really just starting to question these things in the last few years, shame on me. Mm-hmm. Um, but these kind of experiments, all you have to do is do a little digging and read your history books. Found out our government has has taken retarded people and done horrible, giving them syphilis and other kind of well, diseases. Well, not only that,
3: like the Tuskegee experiments, you yeah. know, they injected them with all sorts of crazy stuff. Yeah. Thousands and thousands of people. Right. It was terrible.
0: Now we're finding autism in kids that are getting... Uh, these vaccines, mm-hmm. you know, they're finally admitting that. They're even admitting the the craziest of stories about the the fluoride in our water. Mm-hmm. Now government documents are finally coming out and admitting that it was a terrible mistake. The today. National
3: Research Council, uh, currently the fluoride in your, in your water is about six parts per million. Okay. And uh, the National Research Council last year came out and said that they can't qualify that even half of that number is safe. Half that number, and has anybody done anything about it? Oh, but look, they are—they
0: are. actively push that. On us, though. Yes. Yeah.
3: You got a story for us? I do. <clears throat> this one is from I, listeners. I,
0: by the way, I just want to say I apologize for the subject matter of that last story. The reason why I read it was that I, I think I explained it. Mm-hmm. I, I want you to understand. How far things have gone in your government. Okay. And I don't know any other way to express it to you than the way that Fox News published that on We're not trying
3: to be flippant or funny or anything. We're trying to say, on.
0: we're we're just trying to say, wake up. Mm -hmm. Okay.
3: This, uh, my story is from Forbes. Uh, and it's titled South America Eyes a Common Currency. Uh, uh, the location is Brasilia, that's what it says, mm-hmm. which is capital of Brazil. Capital of Brazil, right there in the rainforests and whatnot. South America is thinking of creating a common currency and a central bank, along the lines of those in the European Union's eurozone. Brazilian President Luiz Inácio Lua da Silva said Monday, the idea. Man, I wish I'd had an easy name like that. There were there was five there. Yeah, five names Bet there. Bet you
0: they're not an acoustician. Now I can say it easy
3: now. <laughs> I don't know if that was right or not, sorry. No, I think that was good. The idea is a logical next step following the signing last Friday of a treaty creating a union of South American states that aims to promote joint regional customs and defense policies, Lula said during his weekly radio broadcast. So basically like you know, it sounds like what they're doing is trying to create one giant kingdom. Mm hmm. Right. South America. One of the ten kings. Mm-hmm. Many things still haven't been realized. We are now, we are now going to create a bank of South America. We are going to move forward so in the future we'll have a single central bank, a common currency, he said. But, he added, this is a process. It won't be something that happens quickly. And I skeptically raised my eyebrows. Argentina. That Bolivia, was not in the story, was That was no, parenthetical. That was okay. parenthetical for all of our listeners. Okay. <laughs> Editor's note. <laughs> Editor's note. Argentina, Bolivia, Brazil, Chile, Colombia, Ecuador, Guyana, Paraguay, Peru, Peru, Suriname, Uruguay, and Venezuela are, all are all signing up to the UNASUR treaty. Treaty. I guess you would say that Unisur treaty. Maybe sounds good to yeah, me. Yeah, Unisur treaty. Creating a regional union during a ceremony in Brazil last Friday, which is uh, uh, this was done in March so or I'm sorry in May, so that was about the middle of May. The entity's goal is to con- is to bring together two trade blocks with South America, uh, Mercosur and the Andean community and to integrate the region. Brazil is also pushing for a regional defense council that could be used as a forum to settle inter-regional disputes as well as formulate joint policies. Lula said that creation of UNICER was the realization of a dream and evidence of remarkable economic and political progress South American nations have made in recent decades. It does kind of seem like a realization of a dream, you know, like you have uh-huh. somebody like made of uh, with like the clay feet, you know yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean,
0: more like a vision than a dream, like Daniel's vision. yeah,
3: that's kind of what I were kind of where I was going with that. right. Brazil, Latin America's biggest economy has taken the lead in the new entity. But Colombia, the strongest U.S. ally in South America and a country often at odds with neighboring Venezuela and Ecuador, has decided not to join. Lula stated that nobody can think of this as a crisis in the nascent bloc, noting that several EU nations also opted out from aspects of European integration, such as adopting the euro.
1: Hmm.
3: So there you have it. Wow. Wow. Uh, sort of a mega. It's inevitable. Almost.
0: It's I mean the nations of the world are coming together. It is a trend that likely will not be turned back. We we only have about uh, three minutes, two mm. and a half minutes. You think you uh, you want uh, something to cover right here?
3: This is one. This one's from uh, Reuters. Uh, the bigger bank failures may be on the rise. Okay. Uh, future U.S. banks fail. Future U.S. bank failures linked to the downturn in the real estate market may include institutions of greater size than in the recent past, Federal Deposit Insurance Corp. Chairman Sheila Baer said on Thursday. An increasing number of banks face high exposure to deteriorating conditions in commercial real estate and construction lending, Baer told a Senate Banking Committee hearing on the state of the banking industry. There is also the possibility that future failures could include institutions of greater size than we have seen in the recent past, Baer said. Uncertainties in today's economic environment continue to pose significant challenges for the banking industry, households, and bank regulators. So far this year, four small U.S. banks with deposits insured by the FDIC have failed, up from three in 2007. The agency last week boosted its list of troubled banks to 90, which is a combined $26 billion in assets. The FDIC is also focusing on banks' liquidity risk management, and investments in structured credit products. The FDIC expects to issue guidance to the institutions we supervise on liquidity, risk, and issues relating to investments in structured credit products, Bear said. Market stress over the past year made shortcomings evident in some institutions. Risk management of these areas and our guidance will address specific areas where risk management efforts should be provided.
0: Okay, so we're going to have to leave it at that. Bottom line is the banks... We ain't seen nothing yet as yeah. far as breaking in the bank. There's going
3: to be a whole bunch of more bank failures, according to mm-hmm. the FDIC chair. We need to uh, let Merv tell
0: you how you can get a hold of us. So, Merv, tell them how they can uh, catch more of our shows at the website and send us some emails with their comments.
3: Future Quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at DoctorFuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or Internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests, or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast.
0: Okay, thank you, Merv. Uh, Mm -hmm. Just a quick word, everybody. Um, If you strongly disagree with anything we talk about here, opinions, during our news review, our guest, or whatever, send us your comments. Uh just try not to make it personal tracks, make it content based. Mm-hmm. And we will treat it respectfully and uh we will try to respectfully express your opinion and we're we look all, forward to it. We're
3: all brothers in the Lord. That's right. We're trying to find the good. truth. You know.
0: And we're we're not a repository of it. We just want to provide food for thought, something mm-hmm. different. Yes. Different perspective to look at mm-hmm. and uh we'll lift each other up iron will sharpen iron. There you go. We gotta go. All right, let's go. And uh we look forward to seeing you next week for another great guest and another show of Future Quake. Until then we hope your future is very bright. Have a good day. Shalom. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake.